Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Board of uh, Multnomah County Commissioners Board Briefing. Audience members, I want to remind you to um, turn off your electronic devices, or sorry, I mean silence your electronic devices. We're not going to cut you off completely. Um, today's meeting is a hybrid board meeting. Some presenters and guests will appear in person and some will appear virtually. For those presenting virtually, please mute your mic when not speaking. When presenting, make sure to unmute your mic and turn on your camera. For all presenters, please state your name for the record before speaking or responding to questions. Today's briefing is on rent assistance and eviction um, prevention. And I want to thank, um, we have DCHS and the joint office, um, um, so I want to thank everyone for being here today and for putting together this briefing at the request of the board to give us a better understanding of the need, the impact, and the outcomes of our rental assistance programs. I want to thank um, my colleagues on the board for their interest in learning more and leaning, leaning into this. Rental assistance was one of the uh, huge areas of investment for the county over the past several years, especially in light of the COVID crisis. Um, the, taken together, the programs that we created and provided to deliver emergency, short-term, and long-term assistance were at the heart of the work at Multnomah County because this is where we can be a direct intervention when a family needs it most. We all want to live in a community where everyone has safe, affordable housing. We want a safety net that truly acts like one that catches people where they are when they're facing an economic challenge and that helps them to find the suitability they seek. One where a family filled with concern and worry for their future can rest easier at night, where they can return to focusing on homework help or family meal, where their housing is maintained, not just in the short term, but for long enough to truly make a difference and help them get back on their feet. We want a thoughtful and equitable approach to this kind of assistance one that supports the people who need it the most. I'm looking forward to hearing more about how these resources work, where our gaps might be, and what we need to consider as we build a better rental assistance and eviction prevention system for the future. Now I'm happy to welcome up Peggy, Anna, and Rachel to take us through today's presentation. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for being here. Um, I also want to take a minute to thank um, all of you for stepping up and doing such incredible work over the last couple of weeks in response to the severe weather. I saw many of you at 5 a.m. in the morning, 10 o'clock at night on different meetings and just really know you were working around the clock to support our community, so thank you for that. Thank you, Chair. Good morning, Chair, Commissioners. My name is Rachel Pearl. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the Deputy Director for the Department of County Human Services. I have the honor of sitting up here with Peggy Samolinski, who's the Division Director for Youth and Family Services at DCHS, and Anna Plum, who's the Deputy Director for the Joint Office of Homeless Services. And today we have the important task of presenting to you information on the full picture of rent assistance in Multnomah County. Rent assistance has been used as a critical intervention to support people in our community for more than 25 years. And during the COVID pandemic, emergency rent assistance became another critical tool to prevent further homelessness as a result of steep rises in rent costs, loss of wages for reasons too many to list, and additional health and economic impacts. These barriers to housing stability are not only still impacting households in our community, but many of these factors have become even more consequential over the last few years. And for BIPOC households, the rate of evictions and homelessness are even more staggering. We know that rent assistance has been found to reduce poverty, improve outcomes for children, and improve adult well-being and a reduction of health costs. Rent assistance is a necessary and effective tool for us as a county to continue to utilize as we work together to address the housing crisis 
and both work to get people into housing and keep people housed who are at risk of losing housing and contribute towards our collective and overall goal of addressing and ending homelessness. Next slide, please. So our agenda for today, uh, we will cover the types of rent assistance that exist, who implements those rent assistance tools, the different roles that the Joint Office and Department of County Human Service play in administering rent assistance, and how each type of rent assistance is funded and at what level, and which providers support getting rent assistance out to our community. We will also do a deep dive to help provide clarity around emergency, short-term, and long-term rent assistance. We will have some client scenarios to help walk you through these different rent assistance tools and how they work to support the people who need them. Our goal was to incorporate the questions that each of you had into this presentation, but we recognize that there may be more questions from you at the end of today's presentation. We will make time to address those, and we hope that if a question pops up for you, one of the future slides might just answer that. We also ask for your grace, as our goal is to be transparent, and also ensuring that information we provide is clear and accurate, so we may need to follow up later with some of those answers as well. Next slide. We've also worked to create more visuals based on some of your feedback to help you really understand um, how this, the complexity of rent assistance and be able to provide different ways of understanding that. So we tried to incorporate as many visuals as we could into this presentation. There are two overarching goals with rent assistance. To prevent eviction, which is accomplished through emergency rent assistance and short-term rent assistance, and then housing placement, which is accomplished through short-term rent assistance and long-term rent assistance. We will walk you through each of those goals and the rent assistance that aligns with that goal. We will also discuss how supportive services are paired with rent assistance and they are absolutely essential to successful outcomes. We will try to tease out supportive services from rent assistance later in the presentation as well. Next slide, please. So we wanna start with level setting of definitions of these types of rent assistance to just help as foundation for this presentation and understand uh, how they're used and who administers those. So we have this graph up here. We'll try to be, we've been consistent with kind of colors throughout this presentation, try to help you follow along. Um, so goal number one is preventing eviction. So maintaining existing housing. So as we said before, that's accomplished through rent, emergency rent assistance and short-term rent assistance. So emergency rent assistance is defined by in response to the COVID-19 pandemic crisis, specific allocations for emergency needs is typically a one-time assistance to prevent immediate eviction. And DCHS is administering emergency rent assistance in the county. A short-term rent assistance that's for preventing eviction is for up to two years with support services and foster stability. And that's also administered by DCHS. Then we have housing placement. So this is placement for someone who, if homeless or needing retention of housing for recently housed clients, so someone that was recently homeless and has been placed. So in that case, short-term rent assistance, which is sometimes referred to as rapid rehousing, uh, for up to two years with supportive services and fostering stability. And that is administered by the Joint Office of Homeless Services and their contracted providers. And long-term rent assistance, supportive housing, is long-term housing support with supportive services, also administered by the Joint Office. So hopefully that helps to kind of understand what we're talking about as we walk you through uh, these, this presentation today. <clears throat> Next slide. 
So this is an overview of rent assistance that is budgeted for FY24. This includes the cap and unanticipated revenue from SHS, so the revised budget for both DCHS and the joint office. Rent assistance payments and supportive services are included in these numbers, um, and we'll describe more in detail the breakdown um, in the subsequent sections of this presentation. So as you see there, there's percentages of how the funding is um, broken down as 24% towards emergency rent assistance, we have 41% towards short-term rent assistance and 35% in long-term rent assistance for a total of almost $135 million. Next slide. So we know that with both of our uh, departments supporting and talking about rent assistance broadly can create some confusion. Uh, so since the creation of the Joint Office of Homeless Services, uh, DCHS and the Joint Office have worked collaboratively to provide housing services. The Joint Office primarily focuses on services for those experiencing homelessness, so funding interventions such as shelter, housing placement, and permanent supportive housing. And DCHS focuses on services for people who are housed with services that help stabilize them and prevent homelessness. So for rent assistance in particular, those roles are really clear. The Joint Office is uh, supporting those who are experiencing homelessness and once placed in housing, their services focus on retention so that people remain housed. And for DCHS, those who are housed but are experiencing housing instability or at risk of becoming homeless. So there's a few instances where those services cross over because it makes sense for the client and it helps to allow for those services to be sustainable. Uh, the Multnomah Stability Initiative and the Regional Long-Term Rent Assistance Program is an example of where the Joint Office provides long-term housing vouchers to families at risk of eviction. And for ADVSD, our aging and uh, services program, their mobile intake team provides housing navigation and regional long-term rent assistance vouchers to DCHS consumers who are currently homeless. So that provides, that fills gaps and allows for uh, folks to re receive that support from services they're already connected to and case managers that they're already uh, have relationships with, which is really important. Um, so we really try to make sure that we're being as collaborative and fluid as possible so that services make sense for the people that need them. So I'm gonna pass it to Peggy, who's gonna walk us through emergency rent assistance. Um, our next part of our presentation, thank you. Excuse me, thank you, Rachel. Good morning, Chair and Commissioners. For the record, my name is Peggy Semelinski. I use she, her pronouns, and I have the privilege of being the Division Director in Youth and Family Services in the Department of County Human Services. So I'm gonna to begin today by walking through emergency rent assistance, and some of this is familiar information to you, but as Rachel was mentioning, we've tried to kind of realign things and, and maybe repackage it a little bit um, so that it's more clear to you uh, what it is we're talking about. Uh, next slide, please. So this slide um, represents the core tenets of emergency rent assistance. And overall, as we know, emergency rent assistance was brand new to Multnomah County as of 2020. Prior to then, we did not have anything we called emergency rent assistance. We had short-term and the beginning tenets of long-term, but nothing, nothing that was emergency. So we know that in 2020, in response to the pandemic, this, this emerged as a viable and really necessary intervention in our community. Um, so it was responding to the pandemic crisis, uh, we received specific allocations from the federal and state governments and locally to support rent assistance, and it was typically one time to prevent immediate eviction. Many people, as you know, had arrears, their, their rent had built up, and so we were helping support them to um, rid them of that arrear and that stress and that concern over that, and then support them to stay stable in their homes. 
In Multnomah County, the emergency rent assistance is part of the broader rapid response eviction prevention program that we created during this time. In this system, we had two areas of focus. Number one, tenants with an eviction notice or a court date. And number two, tenants who are at imminent risk of eviction. And imminent is defined, we're, we're using the state definition for that. Um, people who may lose their primary nighttime residence within 21 days if they don't have assistance. Folks who don't have a subsequent residence identified. Or three, folks um, who may not have another support system in their life, whether it's faith, family, community, to support them to stay stable in their housing. So we have used uh, those definitions to define who's eligible for this program into today. As you see from the slide also, the funding sources are varied. Um, they include um, funding from Multnomah County, the American Rescue Plan, state money, the Emergency Order on Oregon uh, Diversion and Prevention Program, uh, funding through the Joint Office Supportive Housing Services, City Emergency Rent Assistance, and County General Fund. So again, these are dollars that don't all pass through Multnomah County, but that, that are part of our larger system of emergency rent assistance. Next slide, please. This slide again depicts the, the elements or the program components that are part of this, this rapid response eviction prevention, including access and information. We've um, brought in new partners during the pandemic to support this work, knowing that uh, we needed many, many hands on deck to support people and have different ways for people to access services. So 211 Info is one, is one partner there. We have many culturally specific providers, Bienestar de la Familia, the Oregon Law Center, Metropolitan Public Defender, all, all our gateways in. Uh, among others, but those are ones that we particularly fund and have created a system around. We fund the Community Alliance of Tenants as well as one of the components because they provide really important information and advocacy for tenants and people who are uncertain of their rights can call the, the CAT hotline and get information or participate in workshops or other ways to, to be able to um, understand what their rights are as a tenant and to be able to advocate for themselves or perhaps with support. Legal supports um, are another area that we added to this to this program during the pandemic, knowing that uh, there were many people who have eviction notices, as as we know, and um, they needed some support to that. Uh, in fact, the OLC came to us about in the middle of 2021 and said, you know, there are a lot of people on the court docket uh, that we can't get a hold of. They don't have phone numbers. We don't have the capacity to go find them. And we started up our, our outreach program. That's been very, very successful, where staff actually got the names of, names of folks and addresses and went to people's homes. This was back in 21, 22, and early 23, and knocked on doors, literally, and said, hey, we know you have an eviction notice. Do you know that there's resources available? Um, and so that was, that was um, a very successful intervention that we deployed, um, and they continue to this day. And they also go to the court um, where people are showing up for their uh, court dates and do the same thing, advise them of their rights, ask them if they're aware that, that there are some services available, and support them. So that has diminished, of course, over time as the resources have gone down, but we still have maintained the core of some of that. We also have the Oregon Law Center, Metropolitan Public Defender, and with the advent of the $10.1 million that you all approved this past fall, we've added uh, Portland Community College and the, and the Commons Law Center to the eviction uh, legal support work that we have. The last element of this is rent assistance, so not the last, but another element. Um, again, we have that being provided through an array of 25 different nonprofit and public providers um, and Bienestar de la Familia, which is again a program of Multnomah County. Next slide, please. 
For FY23, uh, we're sharing with you the um, outputs and outcomes for people who received emergency rent assistance in, F in fiscal year 23, so the time period ending June 30, 2023. Uh, we served just over 8,800 households with rent assistance. 79% um, of people who engaged identified as from a community of color. Uh, there was an average of 3.6 months of rent paid, again, and 54% of those folks had arrears that were due as part of that 3.6 months. And $4,950 uh, was the average amount of rent provided to each household. Um, one thing I do want to uh, point out is in the fall, we launched a retrospective survey to understand for all past recipients for whom we had a phone number um, who received emergency rent assistance to gather information from them about uh, their stability after receiving that. And what we learned was that 70% of the people who responded to the survey indicated that they'd been stable in that same home since they received rent assistance. So that was new information from us. It's um, in part response to commissioner questions about the stability for folks, and, and um, so I'm sh happy to, or pleased to share that data with you today. Um, and this focus on providing emergency rent assistance has continued into FI24 um, as we've focused on the governor's executive order um, and continue that work this year. Next slide, please. This is a map, is a depiction of um, the areas of the county where people were located who received rent assistance. Um, it's a little hard to see here on the screen, but the darker colors indicate higher numbers of folks in that particular area who received rent assistance. We see that in um, the distribution of rent assistance it is fairly consistent as it's been over the last couple of years, knowing that um, Mid and East County areas where there are more affordable housing units and higher concentrations of low-income renters have have continued to receive and engage in rent assistance. Next slide, please. This slide depicts the year-over-year -year funding for um, emergency rent assistance from FY19 through FY24. As I mentioned a minute ago, um, we had no emergency rent assistance per se in FY19, and that began in, in fiscal year 20 uh, with, with some funding from the state and local dollars. Um, highlighted, the, obviously, the peak here is FY22, where we had over $100 million of, of combined resources to provide rent assistance, $69 million last year and about $32 million um, this year. And as I've mentioned, this, these dollars include all of the support services that I'll be talking about in a minute, um, as well as the rent assistance payments themselves, and again, reflect all of the resources, not just those that pass through Multnomah County. And in total, we've had at least 16 unique funding sources um, in the last four years to deliver um, to support rent assistance. Next slide. This slide is a breakdown uh, for fiscal year 24 of the funding categories. Um, I know that this has been an area of interest. So what this pie chart demonstrates is that uh, 70, about 74 excuse me, 74% of the resources are going to actual rent payments made to landlords. Uh, about 19% are going to supportive services, and by that, those are the um, allied services that we call wraparound, um, the case management, access and outreach, the legal services I described, um, the staff who, who work with households to do the intake and complete applications, it's the tenant in education and advocacy and all other things associated with um, completing that application and supporting that family to be successful um, in, in, in their housing. 
About 6% of the dollars support the indirect to nonprofits, and indirect are the costs that really can't be assigned or charged directly to a particular program. All organizations have indirect charges, things like human resources or uh, the finance department, executive leadership that they can't necessarily attribute to one program, but that cover everything. So that in fiscal year 24, about $2 million or 6% of our resources are supporting that for the, for the nonprofits doing the work. And the last area, just under 1%, 0.9% is for Home Forward, who is processing and verifying the applications and making payments um, to the landlords. So that's the breakdown of how funds are spent in fiscal year 24. Next slide, please. This is a list, uh, not a new list, of the 25 different uh, public and nonprofit organizations that are delivering rent assistance this year. This list has been, again, fairly consistent throughout the past few years with a few ads or um, uh, folks who no longer do it in this, in this current year. Um, but we've had an array of providers focused largely in culturally specific communities to reach those that are most impacted um, by the economic and social upheaval that we've been experiencing. Next slide. As I wrap this particular section up, um, we, we wanted to just spend a minute to talk about looking ahead. So what we anticipate in FY25 is, is reduced funding. Right at this moment in time, the only dollars that we know are secure is $5.6 million from the State of Oregon Housing Community Services. Um, and that's, the, that's funding called ORIDAP, like what we had um, to meet the governor's executive order. Um, and with that money, we anticipate we'll be able to serve about 1,200 households. We expect uh, to continue to see high levels of need. And as I've stated before with you all, quantifying need has been challenging because there's no central data source for this type of information. And we use several different indicators that suggest need. Um, number one, the number of formal eviction filings. And for those of you that have been through one of our many presentations, there's, we, have a, we have a slide that we used to show that showed kind of the, the bar chart of ups and downs of, of eviction filings. And they've, they've varied over the last couple of years. Um, but in December alone, there were eight, 802 total filings. 722 of those were for non-payment of rent. And so if we use the University of Washington statistic from research they did that suggests for every one formal eviction filing, five people have left their, have left self-evicted, they call it, left of their own accord for whatever reason, um, that would be over 3,000 renters who were displaced in Multnomah County in December, or almost 2% of our renters. So that's, that's a lot of folks. Um, we also use uh, people's responses to the Census Pulse question. So the Census began asking questions during the pandemic to really understand people's well-being in a range of topics. One of which, several questions were focused on, have you paid your rent? Do you worry about paying your rent? How up to date are you? Are you behind? Those kinds of questions. Um, and the last survey from mid to late October showed that 8.6% of renters were not caught up in Multnomah County. So that's over 12,000 renters. So again, just there's more, more data. Again, nothing exact, but gives us a good indication. Um, and as I mentioned also for the filings for, for non-eviction, what we also learned was that 55% of the landlords in those filings had attorneys, and only 4% of renters did. And we know um, the odds are not in your favor if you don't have an attorney in, in a court proceeding such as that. 
Finally, another element our, of our retrospective survey of people who received emergency rent assistance revealed that many of them are also struggling with housing instability. Nearly two-thirds of the respondents anticipate having paying, trouble paying the rent in the next three months. So that's one of the questions we ask them. So in combination, these data points um, indicate a level of stress for renters and uncertainty about their future housing stability that, has imp that impacts health and well-being for the family. Next slide, please. Um, one of the things that we've included in this in this presentation, as Rachel indicated, is sort of a, a look at a scenario for each for each type of rent assistance. So in this case, we're looking at Sarah, who is 41 and is um, making minimum wage, which is uh, Locally here, that equates to 30% of area median income. She lost her job during the pandemic and has not found employment at the same wage and currently makes a minimum wage. And her husband is currently unemployed. With rent increasing this year, combined with the other inflationary factors, they're behind on their rent and have received an eviction notice from their landlord. Next slide, please. So Sarah reaches out to 211 for help in this particular case. Um, they do, with their triage team, they do a pre-screen for an eviction notice and her income eligibility and whether they need legal services or not to support that. So 211 then makes two referrals. One is to Bienestar de la Familia, to, to begin the process of, of, rent, of acquiring rent assistance, and a second referral is to 211 for them to talk about their legal situation and determine whether legal support would be needed. Uh, in this case, um, the next step is that Bienestar has a staff person office assistant who schedules um, an appointment with the caseworker. Next slide. So the case manager meets with Sarah and conducts a comprehensive needs assessment and provides crisis support in that moment. So asking questions about, are there any other emergent needs that you have? Are you receiving SNAP if you're, if you're eligible for that? Um, do you know where to find food if, if you become food unstable? Um, are your utilities paid up? So asks a variety of questions, not just about the rent, but about the family's well-being. They complete the application, which includes a, a variety of document gathering, including um, identification. Uh, they require um, a utility, proof of address, um, and, and then they verify the landlord, property manager identification, and our, our newly uh, imposed fraud prevention checklist, um, which is a deeper level look at, at verifying um, authenticity of both the tenant and the landlord beyond self-attestation, which was the primary way we have been doing that during the pandemic. And then th from that process, when the case manager is complete, then the supervisor reviews all of that uh, information. Again, they have their own checklist that they're using to reconfirm information and go back and forth with the case manager as needed. And then they submit to DCHS accounts payable, in this case, because it went to Bienestar de la Familia. Next slide, please. Then accounts payable does their own checking, right? They verify and process the payment, and they mail a check to the property manager. Uh, so Sarah's rent is paid and her family is prevented from being eviction. And another important piece that we're looking at now is as we did at the intake with this particular person and at the end understanding is this going to be enough to help that family stay stable because we know that minimum wage they will struggle and they had been struggling prior to this to getting rent assistance. So she believes she'll be able to pay her rent for the foreseeable future and her husband um, in this particular case had a promising job interview which, which portends good things for that family economically going into the future. So with that, I have the privilege of turning this over to Anitha Lobo, who I believe is joining us uh, virtually from the Immigrant and Refugee Community Organization.
to just share experiences from ERCO's perspective. Hi, good morning, all. Um, can you guys hear me? Good morning. Okay. Uh, my name is Anita Lobo. My pronouns are she and her. I'm working with ERCO as a program coordinator uh, for rental assistance. Um, my experience handling the program um, during this pandemic is, you know, before COVID-19, the majority of people were still having jobs, but they were not able to afford the rent due to, you know, um, emergency uh, medical expenses or unforeseen expenses, car broke down, uh, car repair and all. But they were behind with one or two months and they were still able to manage. But during pandemic or after pandemic, um, we see most of the families uh, were, you know, out of job, financial hardship, and um, there was an increase in Ukrainian migrants due to the war at the same time. So uh, we were able to help a lot of families um, during uh, pandemic, and uh, we were able to help them with a secured deposit and up to six months rent, which gave them some time to relax and start off. So this is my experience, you know, uh, working for the last two years during pandemic. Thank you so much, Anita, for sharing that. We really appreciate your perspective and in hearing your voice. It, it um, makes us all, all the more meaningful to know the impact it's having in the community. Thank so you. I'm going to pause here since we're moving on to the short-term rental assistance. Okay. So I'm going to pause here so we can um, have some questions. We have a lot more um, material to get through, so I'm going to um, ask um, folks to limit their questions to about three minutes, and then anything that we don't have time to address, I know that you guys will all follow up. So we'll start with Commissioner Myron. Thank you. Thanks all for being here. Um, uh, having three minutes to speak, uh, I just am going to address that an administrative question, and hopefully we'll have more time after the whole presentation. Um, the, in terms of getting information to commissioners so we could even prepare for this briefing, um, in terms of getting answers to questions that we submitted over a month ago, heard, um, didn't get any responses to the questions submitted, only got this briefing, um, the slides presented, given to us yesterday afternoon with all of this information, and now we have three minutes to ask questions, and that just is not a process. Um, so, because I've spent my three minutes probably just making that point, but I would also raise the question that um, we had a board meeting scheduled for Thursday where we have three and a half hours. Um, this was canceled because the briefing was not that was supposed to be presented was not complete. Um, could we perhaps ha use that time so that we can actually get our questions answered and have a more full, transparent, and accountable process to talk about rent assistance? So, um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the. Um, of the briefing, a lot of the people who were here working to put these materials together were actually responding like on a 24-hour basis to the, the severe weather. The expectation is that we do get presentation um, materials available a week ahead. Unfortunately, because of the, uh, the severe weather, that was not the case. Um, we had reached out last week, actually, to ask if um, folks from 
either today's presentation or even next week's briefing and meetings were be, would be able to move their presentations to Thursday. None of them were able to do that. Um, and because of that, we, we just didn't, um, we really only had um, the choice to cancel. Um, I am, you know, we're not voting on anything with rental assistance in, in the near future. So this is um, an opportunity to gather questions and to continue to have discussions. I know that all of the departments here are happy to meet um, either one-on-one um, -on -one with um, uh, with commissioners and with offices um, to, to to follow up on those questions or, or possibly even to come back at, to a future date. I will say that um, the questions that were gathered, I know that, that the departments reached out starting in December to gather those questions, and all of those questions were incorporated into this presentation that we're having here. So hopefully the questions that you asked are actually reflected in the information and materials that are being presented today. Thank you. Um, well, uh, I would, they, they aren't. Um, well, and we're I- not, We're not through with the presentation. I mean, okay. I will say- I mean, I've looked through the presentation, but I, I just to, to say um, for Thursday, I, I don't know why this could not be continued on Thursday since all of us have that time in our calendars allocated to a board meeting. And I, it just seems like we are not um, lending uh, importance, credence, and urgency to this really major topic when there was a scathing audit at the state level that talks about emergency rent assistance and um, and we should be addressing all of these questions so that we're accounting for what's happening and so we can prepare even as budget conversations are happening to address um, some of the dysfunction in the system. So I, again, it, I think this is uh, insufficient and uh, I wish it had been planned better, but hopefully there will be some more time to ask real questions afterward. So this was your time to ask some questions for this section. There'll be more time after additional sections. Um, and, um, and again, that state audit was around the state rental assistance, uh, just to, to clarify that. Um, but this is this briefing, and again, further conversations will be an opportunity to ask further questions. Um, so appreciate that. Uh, Commissioner Beeson. Uh, thank you all. <clears throat> I appreciate the presentation thus far, and uh, really appreciate the, the visual part of the slides. I think you did a good job presenting a lot of heavy information, um, complex information. Uh, I have a friend who I will call Joseph. He is a black trans man, and he and his partner were evicted um, about three or four months ago. They um, they didn't their eviction notice didn't necessarily give them information about where to turn, or at least that was their feeling. I'm wondering if you can, and he he's now homeless in an RV. Um, I'm wondering if you can share what the law requires of eviction notices in terms of information, folks' rights, how to access information. Two, when, when I did try to, when he finally reached out to me, when I tried to figure out if there was a path forward, because he had already agreed to a stipulation order, there was nothing to be done. And so I, I'm wondering what is potentially possible in the law there. Um, and then uh, I'm wondering, are there any leading indicators beyond eviction notices, like unemployment filings or, un or employment rates um, that we also use to sort of think even further ahead in, in forecasting? 
And then I'm wondering if you have any reflections on what that zip code map tells us about where that sort of concentration of emergency um, uh, rent assistance was. Thank you all. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, I heard three questions there. One is what's required under the law in terms of what an eviction notice needs to inform a tenant of. And I don't know that answer, but we'll follow up on that. We have uh, colleagues in the system who are happy to either come to the board or we can provide that information for you. That's a good question. Um, I know during the pandemic there were some things that were required, but that may not be the regular law, right? Since many of those pandemic era protections have ended, um, some of those requirements early on have changed. Um, second, um, Okay, no, I forgot the second question. But the third one was about, um, are there other factors that, we're w that we can consider to think about need or anticipate need? And, that, and yes, we'd be happy to you know, incorporate some of those. And we also um, have consulted with Jeff Renfro. So we're, we'll go back to that and kind of um, pick his brain a bit about what he would recommend, because he's helped guide us on this as well. But I appreciate that one. And what was the second one? Uh, zip code map. Zip code map. Oh, that, that was the third one. Okay. Um, well, I think if we could, I don't know if we can go back to that, um, Tasha, please. Um, again, I think what it tells us, what we take from it is it's a visual, obviously, of zip code and, and by zip code of people who've received emergency rent assistance, in this case, in fiscal year 23. Um, and what we know is in, no, I can't really read those zip codes. Um, that's my bad. The dark purple one is, is that 030? Oh, oh, two, sorry. Three, three. I'll three, stop. Three. Two, three, three. Right, so we know that there are, um, that's mid in East County, right? And we know that there's um, high numbers of low income rental units there, not necessarily like home forward managed, but more affordable, if you will. Lots of renters in that part of town, right? We know people have been pushed out to that area of the community um, from the city. And so there's a, so that, that says, says to us that people in those areas who are renting and who are low income are able to access rent assistance, um, knowing that um, that's where many, many folks live who are renters, not exclusively, of course, Thank but you. where they live. Um, any other follow-up you have, we can do it. All right, Commissioner um, Bremen Edwards. Thank you. <clears throat> I may have some overarching questions at the very end that apply to rent assistance gen generally. Um, and I am gonna just join um, Commissioner Myron in expressing my concern about um, the lack of get just getting the materials at the last minute. Um, we had a conversation um, Back when I was a newbie, um, I mean, I still am, but I, we had asked about a presentation um, in September. We were told we were gonna get one. In December, we were asked for questions and to get the materials last yesterday um, on short notice. Um, I, th I think it's really shortchanging. I'm concerned primarily um, shortchanging the topic because last year, the county commission made a very significant investment, $134 million in rent assistance. Um, and it's been portrayed as a critical strategy in um, the response to homelessness in our community. Um, so I, I really strongly believe, especially as we're heading into potentially another ask, um, significant ask around rent assistance that uh, we don't give it short shrift and that we really take the time to go through it and I think um, the community will expect uh, sort of transparency and accountability, and be able to demonstrate that like, this this is the pl this is a place where we should be making uh, a big investment, and that um, it's actually having the intended uh, outcomes that we want. Uh, so, just to frame up, I have two questions specific to this piece. Um, 
So it went from zero um, emergency rent assistance in 2019 to 69 million in FY23, and then 32 million um, this year. And um, as that continues the glide path down, because it sounds like um, the resources uh, that were available um, because there was one-time funding or short-term funding aren't, aren't there, is then the strategy that it's going to, some of this will move into like what would be considered the short-term rent, strate rent strategy? Excuse me. Um, yes, Commissioner. Actually, and I think that's one thing I failed to talk about um, when we were talking about looking ahead, that, that part of our approach um, as we move forward is to um, focus less on the immediate one-time need or use that as a path into longer-term stability. Um, not losing people, I mean, there's a lot of people being evicted and, and we would need a lot of resources to support every one of them, um, but instead shifting some to using, um, supporting people who have evictions or are at risk and then into longer-term. So a little bit more of a, sh yes, a short-term strategy. Long answer to say yes. Shift, like that, cat that category would be smaller, but some of those people who might have been assisted by the emergency will now receive potentially assistance. Right, it could start as emergency, right? They come through that door and then it's like as we assess needs and they're interested to engage for longer term service, that could happen. And then um, this is a question I ask and I feel like um, it's not quite answered by, is that that you couldn't hear me? Was that to me? Yeah, it's, it was on. She was just leaning too far back. I was just leaning too far back. Sorry. I'll get closer to the mic. Um, the question of stability mm -hmm. and the, you know, as the question I ask is, so we have a, sh um, a relatively short-term funding stream, 10, ten years, um, if it's the SHS um, funds and the potentially a, you know, long, longer term um, commitments in terms of uh, rent assistance and your analysis that we went back and checked was that 70% that it did help stabilize 70%. So I'm assuming 30% it didn't do that. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in a much deeper analysis of like what what caused that stability? Because mm -hmm. to me, there's like two, two things, two ways um, that you could be more stable. One, somebody has significantly more income. I mean, so that's, that's the paying, being able to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. Or the rent goes down. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just, or is it something else? Mm -hmm. But um, I think the likelihood of the rent going down that's probably not the case. So, did we see? Did people have a significant increase in their income that all that they went from not being able to pay their rent to they're stabilized because they had a significant increase? Mm -hmm. um, and if I look at during COVID, yes, there were unprecedented levels of people who. Um, Where's your grandmother? Words I just know. Pardon? Where you're about out of time? Who, who lost their income? Mm -hmm. um, but we're now in a, la a different labor market. So the analysis of what created that stability, and I think it's a really important question um, overall f for, for the rent assistance program, because otherwise we potentially could get into a long-term mm -hmm. um, providing rent assistance, and the stability is really not that either the rent got 
less or there was more income, but that there was a continuous like subsidy by government. Um, and I think we should n know that, uh, what that is. So I'm curious, do you have, is there more behind the 70% or more stable? Is there more information or is that um, analysis been done? If, if it has, I'd love to see it. Yeah, so if you could get that information and share it, if there is the information behind it, I think that would but be- Could you answer just at least briefly what, whether it exists? Um, I, I would have to look at the study. We just got those preliminary results of the survey that I was able to share today, um, and I'll go back and check on that. If they did, I mean, again, it was a text to people who chose to respond via a survey, so I'm not sure how, how much they dug into that. When initially our goal was around like, how did, the, how did you fare, right? Did this work for you? Um, so I can go and see what other factors that may have been uncovered during that. Otherwise, we do have an interest in, in understanding that ourselves. So I think some more research and analysis um, is called for. I would definitely agree. Thank you. Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. Uh, first of all, I just really want to appreciate uh, the Joint Office um, and DCHS. Uh, we've just been through a horrific ordeal with the weather and the ice. And the fact that you all are even sitting here in front of us on a Monday morning after what we've been through, uh, down power lines, deaths, and even a death uh, at one of our shelters that I want to acknowledge. And my heart goes out to the individuals who tried to save that individual. Uh, so I just want to recognize, like, this has been traumatic uh, for our frontline workers. And uh, so the fact that you're even here, thank you for being here. Secondly, I think this was one of the best presentations I've ever seen uh, on rental assistance. I still have some questions, but uh, I think that we're really, really getting there. So I just really want to acknowledge um, the life-saving work that you all do. And I also want people to know that there has never been a time that I have not been able to get an answer. There has never been a time that I have not had access to people. Uh, I just want you to know that the public needs to know that um, our staff is responsive to our needs. So I probably use up my three minutes, but I do have a couple questions. Um, you mentioned the Commons Law Center, Peggy, and that 10 million went to, um, I think that from our unanticipated. So I would just want, so are they getting a direct allocation of that? Um, Commissioner, that, yes, that was the 10.1 million of, um, this is actually um, ARPA, ARP dollars that we were in the fall, right? It was part of the larger discussion about unanticipated SHS revenue, but our allocation was that. Um, 2.1 million of that 10.1 was allocated to the um, eviction legal defense work that the city of Portland has been doing, which included the Commons Law Center. So, well, actually, no, theirs included MPD, Multiple Public Defender, Oregon Law Center, and Portland Community College. And then um, the Commons Law Center had approached them and us about how can we be part of that, so they're now part of that okay. project. Very good. Mm -hmm. Um, the only, so the outstanding question I always ask you, Peggy, is I'd really love to see a percentage of when we have, uh, what the overhead cost is through to our nonprofits versus Home Forward. So I'm just trying to gauge like how we decide what amount goes through a particular, you know, if it goes through a nonprofit and what does it cost us when we go through Home Forward. And so that's the only outstanding question I have. Thank you. And we can, um, 
go back and look at our numbers and try to unpack that differently for you, Commissioner. Thank you Thanks. all yep. for being here. Thank you. We'll go ahead and start with the next part of the presentation. Oh, thank you. So we're back to the slides, please. It's me, I'm starting out, and then I'll be sharing with my colleague, Anna. So next, so again, that was emergency rent assistance. Um, the second area that we're gonna review is what we're calling short-term rent assistance. Um, and as captured here, this is one area where both uh, Department of County Human Services and the Joint Office of, of Homelessness Services each utilize short-term rent assistance as one element in their program delivery. So for DCHS, it's again in the area of preventing eviction, and for the Joint Office, it's um, prevent, excuse me, preventing eviction for those who have housing, and then for the Joint Office, it's housing placement for those who are homeless. Um, as Rachel reviewed the, the definitions at the beginning, short-term rent assistance is utilized for up to two years um, for someone up to, again, it doesn't always happen, and includes supportive or wraparound services. Next slide, please. Uh, as consistent formatting, um, we're sharing the goal and population on the left and that block in the center block is a uh, sample of the programs that utilize short-term rent assistance. Um, for the joint office in particular, there are many, many different programs across the youth, singles, and, and family systems that utilize short-term rent assistance, and they've just listed a couple here, but, but clustered out others under the housing placement outreach team and the housing placement out of shelter teams, um, including their, and including their mobile housing team. This slide also demonstrates that there are 13 unique funding sources that support this work across the two departments. Next slide, please. This slide represents the year-over-year -year funding for what we're calling short-term rent assistance um, over the past five years as requested. Uh, this shows that in, for DCHS, which is the darker color line, that's pretty much been fairly consistent over the last five years. Um, and it predates, as I mentioned, it predates the pandemic and was the only, largely the only kind of rent assistance for the last like 25 years was this short-term, um, how we define short-term rent assistance. Um, and for the joint office, you see starting in FY20, 12 million up to uh, fiscal year 24 is uh, almost $48 million. And, and um, for them, rapid rehousing short-term rent assistance has increased significantly over the past five years, as this slide demonstrates, due in large part to the increase in supportive housing services funding. Um, and as a reminder, the, the, short, the supportive housing services funding is designed to serve 75% of people who are chronically homeless. Next slide. This slide has uh, two pie charts, uh, which uh, right here. Uh, the one on the left is DCHS, again, demonstrating um, how the funds are spent and allocated in short-term rent assistance programming. Uh, again, 50% of the dollars, 51, it goes to rent and or client assistance. Again, these are all of the dollars that we're spending in these program areas, so it includes the money that we're contracting to nonprofits, and in one case, one of our programs, there's a um, significant allocation for just client assistance, anything folks need that may include rent but may not be rent, and then they have other, that's why that's combined in that case. Uh, the supportive services, again, the staffing, the intake, the wraparound, the connection to other services, um, and the ongoing support for folks is about 33% of the resources. The indirect to the nonprofits, as I described before, for those overhead costs that cannot be attributed to one individual program are close to 12%, again, largely for our nonprofits. And Home Forward, in this case, um, is playing a different role than they play in emergency rent assistance, and so they're, they're 
their cost is about 4.5% of the total. And I wanna point out, it, this is DCHS specific, and yet um, Home Forward plays this role for both DCHS DCHS and the joint office in this in this arena of, of the short-term rent assistance. So it's it, it's where things get a little complicated, uh, but we're you know wanting to be uh, share that with you. Um, the, the, the pie chart on the right um, is focused on uh, short-term rent assistance for housing placement, and uh, this represents um, one example of a program and providers and how the cost was broken down for FY20. 24. Um, so again, for joint office, it's just one example showing that 44% of the resources went to um, rent and client assistance, 40% for supportive services, and indirect and um, administration was about 16%. Again, that was just one program area, doesn't represent the sum total of all resources through the joint office for short-term rent assistance. And with that, I'm going to turn this over, no, wait, I have one more slide, pardon me. Next slide. For DCHS specifically, um, for the programs that we are um, funding that are for preventing eviction that fall, that utilize short-term rent assistance as one of the strategies. Last fiscal year, FY23, we served about 1,682 households. Uh, again, 68% of them identified as from a culturally specific community. The average months of rent paid was six, just six and a quarter, which I'm gonna admit surprised me when I saw that. We're gonna dig into that a little more deeply. Um, an average payment per household was about $4,000. Um, and in terms of retention, in this case, we only measure six months following exit from program, not 12, and 63% of the households indicated uh, that they were stable in that same housing six months after exit. Now I'm gonna turn it to Anna, who's gonna uh, walk through the rest of this one. Um, thank you so much. Good morning, Chair and Commissioners. For the record, my name is Anna Plum. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the Deputy Director for the Joint Office of Homeless Services. Um, thank you to Peggy for going over some of our financial information. I appreciate that. Um, so I'm going to start by talking about, oh, next slide, please, Teja. Um, I'm going to start by talking about um, what short-term rent assistance looks like looks like on the housing placement side. As you saw in a previous slide, in FY23, there was $37.5 million budgeted for short-term rent assistance, and these are the outcomes that we received for that budget. Uh, 2,440 households received rapid rehousing assistance in that fiscal year. 70% of those households identified as BIPOC or culturally specific, and 88% of those folks were in housing uh, the, the, the next year. I do really wanna dig into these, this average number of rent paid per household in terms of months and the assistance they receive. Because when you say $37.5 million, it's, it is a large amount of money. But when we look at what that actually means per household, the money starts to look um, a little bit more it starts, you are able to understand what this actually looks like for a family. So with that money, um, of those 2,440 people, on average, they received 12 months of assistance. The total amount received on average is that $15,000 amount, and that is spread out over that full 12 months of assistance. If you were to look at that on a 12-month basis, that's $1,200 a month. And that $1,200 a month is not purely rent. It is rent, client assistance, and the case management support services needed to support those people while they're getting that rent assistance. So when you start to look at it in that way, you really see that it's um, the, serving someone, if that was just rent, $1,200 a month in rent assistance would not go very far. And so it is, but it is not just rent. It is also those other supporting services. And I wanna be clear that what that looks like is really different on a per household basis. 
So for example, there may be a household that when they are, when they apply for the services, their need has to do primarily with, they have a bunch of debt and they need help with a security deposit. They are able to pay their rent on an ongoing basis, but what they need is that bulk of flexible client assistance to help pay down their debt and pay for the security deposit. And then they will be able to pay rent on an ongoing basis after that. Another household may not have debt, may not need security deposit, but they might need 12 months of rental assistance and case management. And so there, the, the combination of funds that serves them will look different. So that average amount of $15,000 spread out over 12 months, $1,200 a month, and it looks really different depending on what that household is receiving, and that does include the case management cost. Next slide, please. This is a list of the providers that we work with to provide that short-term rent assistance. You can see it is a robust and diverse list of folks across our community. Next slide, please. We also wanted to offer what this looks like for our folks who are accessing short-term rent assistance. So this is not a real example and not a real name, but this is an example of what it looks like to access short-term rent assistance, which we often call rapid rehousing. So Tristan and his son have been living in their car for the last 18 months, and they're considered to be chronically homeless. Tristan does have an income of $17,532 a year, which is a monthly SSI payment, which puts him at less than 30% AMI. Next slide, please. In this case, Tristan is approached by an outreach worker from one of our nonprofits called JOIN. And I wanna talk about what we mean when we say approached by an outreach worker and what that means to Tristan. Tristan did not know, have to know to call a number. He did not have to try to find an office and be there in the hours that they were open and go into an intimidating environment and figure out what he even needs to ask for. Someone was out there looking for folks like Tristan who need help, connected with Tristan and built a relationship and then helped connect Tristan to those resources. In this case, Tristan learned that he could rely upon that outreach team, and he agreed to go through uh, the coordinated access assessment to see if he's eligible for services. Next slide. So Tristan works with that outreach worker and he does a coordinated access assessment and he's referred to the mobile housing team. That is a multi-agency collaborative of nonprofits that help families connect with short-term rent assistance via rapid rehousing. In this case, he's referred to NARA, one of our culturally specific providers for case management and rental assistance. He starts meeting with his NARA case manager. They do a little bit of paperwork to get things started and then he begins the housing search process. So in this scenario, that NARA case manager is helping understand what Tristan's needs are. Is it rent assistance? Is it flexible assistance? What kind of apartment does he need? What other things might he need? Does he need help with documents? So that case manager is assessing what he needs and helping him find that apartment. Next slide, please. In this case, scenario, Tristan receives 12 months of rental assistance, and during that time, he's also receiving supportive services from that case manager. Um, as that 12 months comes to an end, he no longer needs rental support. He is able to take over the rent on his own and the rental assistance ends. That being said, that period can be a hard transition. And so Tristan continues to receive what we call retention support from that NARA case manager. Help troubleshooting other items that may come up to ensure that Tristan has the skills he needs to be fully independent when that retention support ends. Uh, this is the end of short-term assistance. I can move right into long-term. Okay. Do we have questions now or do we want to wait for? Okay. So we'll go um, to the board for questions. We'll start with Commissioner Beeson. Thank you. Um, and we'll, we'll have about a couple minutes each for questions. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, the, do we measure retention rates slightly differently between eviction prevention and the um, 
uh, and housing placement? Um, no, I don't believe so. Um, sometimes it might be the length, right? So for we measure at six months, okay. and I believe we measure at six. I'm, uh, this is where I don't want to be off, but I believe we measure at six and twelve for short term. Okay, and then so what do we think is behind the higher retention rates for the housing placement versus uh, eviction prevention? I th so you'll notice that the length of support for short term assistance tends to be longer. Um, so that could be it, but I don't want to. I don't want to speculate on the uh, mic, but we can definitely look into that and provide you some more information. Okay. Um, and then it seems like the short-term rent assistance is significantly cheaper than some of our other um, uh, housing options for folks that are experiencing homelessness. Is that generally true, or is that because we're placing them in other kinds of subsidized units that, we're, that are hard to sort of measure the we're not measuring the, the total subsidy, if you will. Does that make sense? Like if Tristan is getting into um, a CDC's unit, then, and we're helping cover that rent there, right? Where it's kind of hard to think about capturing the whole subsidy versus if they're in a task site pod, you know what I'm, am I, is this question making any sense to me? It does okay. make sense and I want to make, I would like to follow up to make sure we're really fully understanding the question and answering it in an accurate way. I, we will talk about in the long term section um, how we think about rent reasonableness for when we pay, what, what, when we pay rent for a person, what the limits are for what we will pay. Okay. If that makes, that does. helps answer part of that yes, question. Yes, thank you. Those are my questions. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Commissioner Burm Edwards. So this, this is a question that during the short-term uh, rent assistance portion, but it applies just across the board to all of them. Um, it looks like uh, DCHS has had a pretty consistent... Commissioner Graham um, Edwards, is your mic on? Sorry about that. Has had a pr fairly consistent um, amount of rent, uh, short-term rent assistance uh, since FY20, about $7 million, and there's been a huge, massive increase in the joint office. Um, so just a, the first question is, um, Peggy, when you were outlining um, sort of the retention and everything else, were, were you speaking for both DCHS or DCHS and the Joint Office? Um, I was speaking um, specifically for DCHS, right? There was a slide for each. Okay. Um, I just want to make sure, like, for example, the stability. So I'm going to drill down the, uh, just a minute. And then I had asked a question uh, last fall because we had, um, when we were looking at the um, the SHS money that we were going to direct housing Multnomah now, there was just, a, it turned out it was like $26,000 per person um, for rent assistance. And when I asked it was, it's about 13,000 in rent assistance, it's about 13,000, I mean in actual rent and 13,000 and something else. And I'm looking at the pie chart on page 24, and for each section you have these pie charts. Um, was, uh, my understanding is the money flow through, and this should especially be for the joint office, mm -hmm. it goes from Metro, and then they take 5% generally for admin, is my understanding. It's this slide. So, be, be, even, so for example, even before we get this rent <laughs> Metro's taken a 5% cut, and then it comes to the, the joint office, or the county, and then the joint office, and then home forward, and then to the CBOs or the contact providers? Is that generally how this tears out? And then 
what I was looking for is that there's some general charts here, but I don't quite understand is like how much of each one of that is, and those are a lot of hands to pass through. Mm -hmm. And yes, every en entity has indirect costs, so I'm just looking at that, starting with the metros taking 5% out, um, you know, at the end of the day, what's left mm -hmm. for the actual rent in dollar terms. Yeah, so what we have here, thank you for putting the slide back up, Tasia, is I won't, I don't wanna to speak to the Metro piece because I don't wanna misspeak on that and we can follow up for sure on that, what that looks like. Um, when you were speaking about once it comes to the joint office, so Home Forward is involved in some of our programs and not all of them. So the example you have here on slide 24, the piece you're talking about is that indirect administration and actually 12% of that is indirect that goes to nonprofit providers to support their general operations. And then 4% is materials and supplies. That's also for that helps just keep the programs running. So in general, you can see both between DCHS and the joint office that indirect to support the nonprofit provider system is about 12% for these programs. This is an example, and I we do understand that there is interest in knowing that to more detail across all of the joint office programs. The way that our tracking systems work right now, we don't have the capacity to pull out, for example, specifically um, FTE from supportive services across all of our systems. We are working on that and making a more robust tracking mechanism so we get down to that level of detail for you. But if you're interested in seeing like we start from $100,000 and what does it look like out the door, we can see to what ability we can follow up with you after that on this. Yeah, and this is sort of the, the larger sort of community-based um, conversation, which is there's a lot of money that goes to Metro and then how at the very end it, it flows through and sort of what sort of value we're getting for our, our money. Um, and then, I'm gonna ask the same question on page 26. This would be the joint office um, on housing retention. And again, a very similar question of, is it retention because their financial situation changed? Um, and, and how do we know that with like um, specificity and data versus um, sort of like somebody just said like, hey, I'm stabilized. Um, I think, yeah, sorry. Or sort of more, the, more rigor in the, in the data, and, and there may be, that may be underneath the 88%, but I'm curious, is, is there a lot more information underneath that that we know specifically what, what worked? I think the question of what works and how do we, what is the best possible thing to keep someone stably housed is a great question. We do know that rent assistance is one of the things that works. Um, and I think what you're trying to get at, and which I think is a really great question, is what else works and how can we make sure that we're doing the best possible thing? I think the Joint Office is also very interested in doing that kind of research and analysis. And we're starting to do some projects um, on that related to sort of pathways to housing. But I think what you're asking is a, a question on once you're in housing, what leads to that stability? And I think that's an excellent um, project that we could take on to make sure we're understanding that better as we move forward. Okay, and I'm gonna, and I need to move on to commissioner's segment now. Okay, just one sentence. Um, I really appreciate that because I think as we move forward, we're gonna wanna know what specifically worked. Like if it's a security right. deposit, that's great information to have. Yep. But otherwise, it's sort of like, we generally think okay. it works. Thank you. Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. Uh, 
Peggy, I just wanted to confirm, Bannister is not uh, geographic, like they serve the entire county, is that correct? That is correct. Okay, very good. Um, and then I had a broader question, so like in 2023, there's there was 37.5 million. How does the money get allocated between DCHS and the joint office? Like how does that, how do you determine what department gets what amount of money? Uh, um, you're referring to the bar chart? Commissioner? Yeah. Um, what I would say is, number one, these are different funding sources. Right. So the funding sources for DCHS are different funding sources than what the joint office has. So I can speak to DCHS. Um, for us, that's uh, state funding largely, emergency housing assistance, EHA, e elderly run assistance, some county general fund largely comprises that. Um, and we have ways that we allocate the dollars based okay. on, you know, based on practice that we have in place for the programs that are getting these funds. So, because there was one slide about like the overlap. So there's not really, uh, because of the funding streams, it's allocated to a particular department then? Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Brown. Hi. Um, I uh, have questions about the um, splitting between DCHS and joint office. Uh, that's been a question for me for, for quite a while. Um, because it looks like some of the funding streams are actually the same funding streams, but they're going to different places. Um, so I, at whatever later date, would love to um, delve into that because it seems like it makes for inefficiency and potentially confusion um, when we have two departments uh, administering what I think common sense would suggest is a housing function um, service. I also want to talk about the um, retention issue. I think that is one of the biggest questions that's out there. I really appreciate Commissioner Brim Edwards elevating that and speaking to accountability about that um, because, you know, I, uh, I had asked for retro Mm -hmm. even a retrospective analysis because we did not have prospective analysis for the money um, expended during uh, during COVID and a little after. Uh, and Peggy, you had mentioned there would be a retrospective analysis. You know, the fact that it's, it, you described it as a text to those who chose to respond um, sort of makes me not feel as confident in that being uh, robust data. And in terms of the retention number of 88%, I also um, have a lot of questions about where those numbers came from because, you know, in terms of the DCHS part, you know, it refers for all the people that ha had phone numbers, but how many is that compared to the whole number? And then, 70 of those who responded, of those we had phone numbers for, were stable. So how many responded? How many did, like, it's a percentage yep. of a percentage of a percentage Absolutely. of a percentage. So um, I get concerned we're not getting the real information. And, um, and so similar questions would go toward that 88% number, which just doesn't, so I'd like to follow up on that. Um, and then specifically for slide number um, 22, I believe, with short-term rent assistance, uh, talks about, is, is short-term rent assistance go to direct housing placement for people off the street? Yes. 
Okay, and so um, I'm, I would be curious to see a breakdown of what amount or percentage of that we are using on people going from the street as opposed to out of shelter, out of some mm -hmm. sort of treatment, or out of uh, incarceration. And, and I would also like to dive into if this investment is growing so significantly, why, why street level homelessness um, is not receding in some proportion. And then I just wanna add my appreciation to Commissioner Julia Broom Edwards um, raising of that administrative burden that is placed, um, you know, how much I've, I've asked this for a very long time, I still don't feel I've gotten a response of how much of this money goes to actual rent for actual people in need versus Metro versus Home Forward versus our organizations. Uh, because it sounds like a lot is being used administratively and I would like to really um, understand that. Thank you. Okay, great. Great questions, we will follow up. Thank you. Thank you, all right, let's go ahead to look at long-term rental assistance. Thank you, Teja, for the <laughs> gymnastics on the slide, I appreciate it. Okay, so I'm going to talk about long-term rental assistance, which is a housing placement program. Next slide, please. Um, so again, the goal of this is housing placement and retention, and long-term rent assistance really primarily serves folks who are um, extremely low income and who are experiencing long-term homelessness, often considered chronic homelessness. They often have a severe temporary or long-term disability as well. Long-term rent assistance combines a rental subsidy to keep housing affordable with um, wraparound supportive services, including behavioral and physical health supports, benefits and income-related services, and in-home housing retention supports, which could be a number of things is really driven by the tenant's needs. One thing I don't think we've done a great job of communicating about in the past is that there are different kinds of supportive housing. We hear a lot about permanent supportive housing. That's sort of what people talk about when they talk about long-term rent assistance. Um, and that is the lifelong rental subsidy that comes with intensive long-term supportive services. So you can have that voucher as long as you need it and there is a high level in intensive support services. We also have supportive housing, which is a long-term voucher, but the services are what we would call a lighter touch. They might be shorter um, term, or they might just be less intensive than the services offered during permanent supportive housing. Next slide, please. This is the funding for long-term assistance over the last five years. You can see it has increased significantly. That is primarily due to funding from the Supportive Housing Services measure, which was geared towards funding supportive housing. And these increases have been purposeful. Uh, in our local implementation plan, we have a goal to create 2,235 more additional permanent supportive housing opportunities over time. And we are working towards that goal and the increase in funding uh, matches that goal. Next slide, please. Uh, this question starts to get at the question you all have raised about how much is going out in rent and how much is supportive services and how much is administration. I wanna state once again that this is an example uh, from one uh, joint office permanent supportive housing program run by a local culturally specific nonprofit. 
In this case, 54% of the funding goes to supportive services, and this does include case management FTE, um, and those, but it also includes the items you see up, up here. All kinds of different individualized, flexible, tenant-driven services to help that person stay in their home. That can be making sure folks are getting to their medical appointments, making sure they are accessing the medicines they need to stay safe. Does that person need help making sure their apartment is staying clean enough so that they can stay in that residence? Do they need help talking with their landlord? Are they having issues with their neighbors? Do they need help filling out financial paperwork? There is a long, long range of things that folks can need, even when they have that rental subsidy, to be successful in that housing. So those supportive services are very, very crucial to the success of our long-term rent assistance programs. Another 41% um, goes to rent assistance. In this specific example, that rent assistance is administered by Home Forward. Um, and that 4% is the administrative rate paid to Home Forward to do that processing for us. So here, how does that work exactly? So the joint office sends money to Home Forward, and Home Forward then pays landlords directly. And I'll talk a little bit about more when we go through the client scenario. I'll walk through those steps with a little bit more detail. As a reminder, the joint office is not a direct service provider, so we are also funding the nonprofit providers to provide those supportive services you see in yellow. Next slide, please. These are the outcomes for all of our long-term assistance programs um, for fiscal year 23, with a caveat that some of them are examples from one program. So across all of our long-term assistance programs, we served over 4,000 households with supportive housing assistance. 50% of those households were BIPOC or culturally specific, and the housing retention from FY22 into 23 was 99%. I want to be really clear about what I mean by that because this is a very specific number. This is housing retention, not program retention. So this is defined as if you enter a permanent or a long-term housing assistance program in the joint office and you maintain your housing regardless of whether or not it is in that specific program. So someone could enter, a, let's say, a permanent supportive housing program uh, via a nonprofit provider. They may exit that program to another permanent housing situation. They are considered retained, and that's what this 99% is measuring. We do also measure the retention for specific uh, programs, and for those programs, the retention rate is more around 85%, because again, somebody may, may leave one permanent supportive housing program to go to another, or they may go to live in another stable situation that is outside of our system. So I just want to be really clear about those two definitions, because you'll see both, and I want to make sure you understand that. Um, the monthly rent assistance you see here, this is just for our regional long-term rent assistance programs. Here we can pull out just that rent assistance piece because the rent assistance is going through Home Forward and the supportive services is going through our nonprofit providers. So we can show that for those programs, about $1,000 is the average monthly rent assistance payment. Right now, our overall average number of years on, in supportive housing is 3.6. We think that is low. A lot of our programs are relatively new, as you can see from the ramp up in funding and the creation of programs like the Regional Long-Term and Assistance Program. We do think that average number of years will go up as our programs age over time. Next slide, please. This is a list of the providers that we work uh, with to provide those supportive services. Again, it's a robust and diverse list of providers across our county. Next slide, please. So here is a scenario for someone accessing our regional long-term rent assistance program. Again, this is not a real person, um, but it is a very good example of what it looks like to access this program. 
Marla is 67 years old. She has been living outside off and on for five years and she's considered chronically homeless. She has a disabling condition and she's HIV positive. She does have an annual income of $12,000 a year, which is less than 30% AMI. Next slide, please. Marla is approached by an outreach worker at the outside camp where she is living. In this scenario, she was outreach, she's, uh, was met someone from our coordinated housing access team, which we call CHAT. This is a program that engages and assesses folks um, for eligibility for programs, specifically permanent supportive housing. Most people served by the CHAT team are uh, overrepresented in our, uh, in uh, people experiencing homelessness, underserved, and are not accessing more mainstream housing resources. There is specific emphasis in this program on um, serving folks of color in our community. In this case, the chat worker met Mara, uh, Marla and they assess her for vulnerability and identify her as being eligible for and needing permanent supportive housing. Next slide, please. Um, through the coordinated access assessment, uh, she is identified as eligible and she's referred to Cascade AIDS Project's new program called Housing Opportunity for Better Medical Outcomes. This is a program that uh, was created in 2022. It serves 30 adults who have, been, who have been identified from our vulnerability assessment as being um, highly vulnerable and who also identify as HIV positive. Uh, in this case, Marla meets with her CAP manager and fills out the application for that long-term program. Home Forward then reviews that application, confirms that she's not already receiving rent assistance, and they approve her for a voucher that says, we will help pay your rent when you find a, a place. Next slide. Marla then meets regularly with her case manager from CAP. They search for apartments, and she's approved for a one-bedroom unit. In this case, the case manager sends information about that unit to Home Forward, and they do a variety of things. They make sure the unit is safe and meets their standards, um, and they check rent reasonableness, and they then enter into a contract to pay the landlord the monthly rent. When I talk about rent reasonableness, I want to pause for a minute and talk about what that looks like. In this case, Marla does have an income, and she will pay just under 30% of her income towards rent, and the rest will be subsidized by that voucher. For this to happen, units must be rent reasonable. And what that means is at the time of lease up, that rent cannot exceed 120% of the fair market rent for the region. And there is a worksheet, work excuse me, that landlords and applicants can work through to think of, to look and understand what reasonable rent would be for that household. Then Marla moves in. Next slide. Marla is now in her apartment and she's receiving ongoing rent assistance and wraparound supportive services from her case manager and to make sure that she can be stable and healthy in her new home. Next slide. To talk more a little, a little bit more about this, I would like to welcome Jonathan Frotzweg from uh, Cascade Age Project to come up and speak to their experience with our long-term rent assistance programs. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Chair Vega-Peterson, commissioners, uh, for the record, my name is Jonathan Froxwake. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm the public policy manager for Cascade AIDS Project, or CAP. Uh, speaking on behalf of my colleagues in CAP's Housing and Sports Services Department, we really appreciate the opportunity just to share some information with you all about how long-term rent assistance supports our clients in achieving housing stability and positive health outcomes. CAP provides a variety of short and long-term rent assistance, but this morning I'll be talking specifically about the um, regional long-term rent assistance that participants in CAP's HOBMO project receive. 
So HOBMO stands for Housing Opportunities for Better Medical Outcomes. It's a relatively new project, as was mentioned, funded about a year ago by the Joint Office using Supportive Housing Services Measure Revenue. Like almost all CAPS housing programs, HOBMO seeks to improve the housing stability of people living with HIV so that they are better able to engage in HIV care. And there's a large body of research supporting the effectiveness of this housing as healthcare strategy for people living with HIV. So for example, studies have shown that people living with HIV who are unhoused or unstably housed are less likely to receive and adhere to HIV treatment, more likely to be hospitalized, use emergency rooms, and die prematurely. In contrast, research has found that hospitalizations for people living with HIV decreased by nearly 60% after they were stably housed, and mortality for people with an AIDS diagnosis decreased by 80% after they received supportive housing. Something that makes CAP fairly unique is that we collect health data, not just housing data about our clients. So for example, whether they are engaged in HIV care. For most unhoused people living with HIV, HIV may pose the greatest risk to their health, but it's one of only a number of challenges they faced. So many of our housing program participants are experiencing uh, mental health issues and or substance use disorder on top of their HIV status. As a result, placing and retaining these clients in housing requires not only long-term rent assistance, but also intensive housing case management and wraparound supportive services. And the HOBMO project provides all of those supports directly or indirectly. Uh, the project serves 30 households. Participants were selected from the adult coordinated access waitlist based on their vulnerability as determined by the VISPIDAT assessment. Um, and of course, uh, they need to be living with HIV to be eligible. Uh, so the regional long-term rent assistance vouchers that HOBMO participants receive are administered by Home Forward, and we found that Division of Labor reduces CAP's reporting burden and really frees up our staff capacity to allow us to focus on supporting clients. Uh, the vouchers are tenant-based, meaning clients can use them on any unit in the tri-county region that's rent reasonable. Um, Tenant-based rent assistance tends to give clients more choice in where they live, which can improve the chances a client will do well and stay in their housing. All regional long-term rent assistance vouchers come with access for the landlord to a risk mitigation fund that can cover costs associated with damages or um, unpaid tenant portion of rent. Uh, and those landlord guarantees uh, we've found really incentivize cooperation with landlords who might otherwise not rent to clients with barriers like ours have, such as a criminal record. Alongside rent assistance, HOBMO provides housing case management, which includes helping participants find housing, helping them navigate the leasing process, and supporting them if any issues with their housing arise, like conflict with the landlord or other tenants. Each HOBMO housing case manager serves no more than 15 participants, which is a smaller caseload than most of our housing case managers can have and allows for the high level of support that clients with multiple significant housing barriers need. HOBMO also includes funding for security deposits and supplies that help clients, um, particularly clients transitioning from long-term houselessness to succeed in their new housing, things like basic furnishings, literally a bed, uh, and household goods. Lastly, the program facilitates clients' connection to CAP's broad array of supportive services. These aren't necessarily funded by the program, but once the client is kind of in our ecosystem of services, they have access to peer support, social support groups, one-on-one -on -one behavioral health counseling in partnership with Cascadia Health, employment assistance to increase income, and culturally specific services for Latin A and Black and African American clients. 
Uh, less than one year into this project, CAP has placed 27 households in housing and we're in the process of leasing up the last three. Our HOBMO housing case managers, Ellie and Michaela, report that long-term rent assistance and housing case management are already positively affecting participants' lives. Michaela shared that, quote, when one of my clients got leased up, it was the first apartment they've ever been able to call their own, and it was in an awesome location, too. Since moving in, they've been able to access medical care more reliably. One of Ellie's clients entered the HOBMO program after fleeing domestic violence and was living out of his car with dogs. Since then, Ellie shared, he has leased up in a beautiful house and been able to focus on potentially going back to school to get a degree. Long-term rent assistance doesn't solve every problem, but for clients with significant housing barriers, we at CAP have seen over and over the tremendous positive impact that this kind of help can have on a person's health and overall well-being. Thanks for listening, and if you have any questions, I'm happy to try to answer them. Thank you so much, Jonathan. appreciate you being here. Next slide. Okay. Thank you all for going on this rent assistance journey with us. Uh, you know, we understand your feedback's fair around uh, getting the material slate. We know that we had every intention of that not happening. Um, and uh, so I won't go into why, and I'll just say apologize for that. And I will say that I think from your questions and from what my colleagues here have done a brilliant job of walking you through is that this is really complicated. It's very complex. There's a lot of um, components to this that make it challenging to dissect and make it really digestible for all of you. And I really hope that we've done a decent job of doing that today. And I know that our next steps, and we're already on this journey, is to do more quality uh, improvement and really thinking about how do we understand what the information we already have means? How do we use that to help us make continued improvements to our processes and how we administer rent assistance? And I think we're all in that space with you and uh, want to do that. So uh, we look forward to continue to have this conversation. We recognize it's not a one and done and um, it's far too complex for that to be the case. So thanks for, for bearing with us today. Thank you all so much. I know we'll have um, questions, so we'll go to the board for that. I'm going to um, ask everybody to keep it for about, if we if everybody has five minutes for question, that takes us to noon. So if um, I know folks um, had comments that they wanted to share just in uh, general things, so just to keep that in mind so that we will we'll definitely have time for that. So um, um, uh, Commissioner Vermeer, I'll um, ask you to begin. So I'm just going to say, um, there are circumstances where we get presentations, um, and I think we need to extend when we get them later than we should, and we need to extend grace. But I also would ask that when we're in a public forum that we get the courtesy of being able to, not being limited in our time, so we got the materials late. I mean, as everybody knows who has sent um, things to me in advance, I usually send a lot of questions in advance to give people an opportunity to um, ask, answer them, um, and we didn't get that in this case, so I would just think we should have the courtesy of being able to ask our questions here at this meeting. Um, I've got to say, I benefit from hearing the answers to my fellow commissioners' questions, um, so it's not just the things that um, I'm curious about and want to know answers, but I'm also interested in the questions that, because everybody brings different expertise and um, sets of experiences, um, so what we lose is by cutting off commissioners asking questions and having in a forum is all of us um, learning from each other and um, getting people's insights, so I'm just going to say that. I have, I have a question. Um, I'm going to 
this is just on the long term and then I have some overarching, you can tell me if I'm gonna do it later, but on the permanent um, supportive housing, what is the definition of permanent? Could it be, if somebody's fairly young, could it be 10 years or is it 50 years? I mean, it, what what is the sort of general expectation? Because when I think permanent, that means like, we, as long as you're in Multnomah County and you qualify, that we will provide that. That's what permanent means to me and I'm curious about your definition of permanent. Yeah, it is meant to be there as long as that person needs that. There are programs to move off of if somebody is ready to do that. So there is a national best practice called, they're called moving on programs. That's actually what they're called. Uh, when someone who might still need that rental subsidy, but they don't need that same level of services. So there are programs, and I can provide more information with more detail, um, that allow folks to step down from that intensive permanent supportive housing situation to a different program when they're ready to move on. But there is no, you know, you have to end after a specific number. That's why it's considered permanent, right, is as long as that person needs that voucher. Sure. Okay, um, so this is links to that question and it goes back to the, also the stability question and the sustainability of this program. So we have a 10-year tax um, that has infused a huge amount of money into the, to the system to respond to the need. Um, do, are we doing the analysis of what we'd actually need? Because my, my, my assumption is over time, if you're saying it's permanent, that that group of individuals gets larger because um, it just does over time. And that what then would we need to have for this to be a sustainable program to actually um, live up to our, the commitment? Because right now it seems like if it could be more than 10 years, we actually don't have a way to pay for that. So while we've committed to individuals as permanent, we don't actually have a revenue stream that's permanent. And there's conversations happening about potentially using part of that revenue stream for housing, which is concerning if we don't have a plan to pay for a commitment. I feel like when we say permanent to somebody, like that sounds like a really significant um, commitment. So I'm curious, is that um, analysis and what the projections of financially what we need in order to um, keep that commitment to a growing number of people, what that would cost and that we have the ability to actually keep that? Is that analysis happening or and work underway? So we are working on exactly that, is what do our service costs for the, specific to the supportive housing services measure look like over time? So yes, that's happening now. It's not complete, but we can. Let you, we are working on that. And when will we have that before, say, next budget cycle? Or um, I say, I know there's conversations happening right now about um, somebody taking sort of a little bit of a money grab of like, hey, you, there's a lot of money in the SHS fund and we'd like to use that for housing. So I'm curious, are we gonna have that analysis before those other conversations happen? So that, so that we can actually, I feel like the county keep its commitments um, that we see, we're making to people when we say that we're gonna provide that indefinite that is the intention, yes. <laughs> okay, great. Um, this is a, just a higher level question about the whole presentation. Um, so this was about, the presentation was primarily focused on 2023 data, mm -hmm. correct? So in 2024, um, so in 2023 it was 148 million, all the different types of um, rent assistance combined in 2024, that stepped down a bit to 134, still a very significant number. Do we have, since 
the presentation on all was about last year data. Do we have any real time this year data of like where are we in terms of um, providing rent assistance? How many households is like, are we getting to a stage where we actually have like quarterly reporting on how much short term or long term rent assistance we're providing and then what sort of outcomes and then what the trend, what the trends are? We do quarterly reporting, um, and so what we can follow up with you on what we're, what has, with the status of those, yes. Great, that would be helpful just, again, as we head into the budget cycle, um, to know that another very significant investment um, is actually, see what the results are being produced. And then the point 2023 point in time count, which, which I know is like just a snapshot in time and it's always an undercount, uh, but for Multnomah County was 6,297 people. Do we know how many people actually move from um, chronically homeless um, or from the streets into housing last year because of that, like how did, how did the overall numbers change? Again, this goes to like our accountability to the public of um, making a huge investment and they're doing their assessment based on their neighborhood, what they see, people they know, and it doesn't seem like it's getting better. So, so the, the question is like, what numbers do we have that show that that large investment people who were, were homeless now have housing because of the rent assistance. So the, the numbers in the presentation show who was, who was served, right? And then if you're looking for a total across all the programs, we can come up with that for you to, to combine that for you to say how many people were placed. Yeah, so, it's, so this wouldn't be the um, prevented eviction or um, somebody was able to stay in their house, but like how many people actually move from, mm -hmm being on the, the streets from shelter into housing with rent assistance. Um, again, this, like, is this, is this the, the tool? I guess this goes back to the effectiveness and what's working. Is this the tool that's actually helping move people or is it have a whole different usage? Um, and we just need to be clear with people, like that's, this isn't the, the best tool we have. Um, so the, the numbers that we showed you for the housing placement, it's the, I think around 2,400 who were placed via short term and then the 4,000 served with PSH. So those are placements into housing. Um, for the permit supportive housing, I wanna make sure that um, I'm not conflating sort of ongoing so I can follow up to make that more specific uh, response. But those are the folks that are being placed into housing. I think the other piece is what's the inflow, right? And I think that's part of the question that you're asking is um, what does it look like? Who's entering homelessness as we're exiting folks? Right, this is the whole like, this is the problem we're trying to solve. How, yeah. how big is it and what's the delta? Yep. Uh, but I think if we're not able to answer that, it looks like it's- a little bit more. I don't finish my, my point. No, just, no, no, okay. I want you to lean forward. I don't think people can hear. Okay. Um, it's just being able to answer the question whether we're actually, again, there's, it's a complex problem, but like having the actual overall number then with inflow and outflows, but are we actually reducing the number who are people are living um, without housing? I, I think like one of 
those questions would also be what would our point in time count look like if we didn't have rent assistance, which is also a way of asking that question that I think would be interesting for us to ask ourselves because we recognize that the, pro the reasons why people need these services are not changing rapidly enough for them to not need them. And so I think we would see a, a drastic increase in our point in time count if we didn't have them. So it's another, it's essentially a similar question to what you're asking, but I think we can all continue to, to ask those questions and try to provide more information. Yeah, and I, yeah. What we hear you saying is that there is a more effective way to tell the story that we can work towards. Yeah. Well, not just tell the story, but like make sure that we're actually effectively making. Because um, I think when people voted that voted for um, the supportive housing services measure, it was with a very identified group in mind, and we've actually helped a lot of other people as well. And I just want to make sure that we're still focusing on that. Group, so it's it's more than storytelling. It's just like is is it actually is that our most effective tool? It could be something else, and we still do this because it's doing good things. But is this an effective tool for uh, moving people off the streets? Thank you, Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. Um, do we know the effectiveness of uh, like the? In fact, I was following a chat uh, vehicle this morning, but I mean we've heard that a lot of folks. Uh, you know, I think the Oregonian did a survey where they were saying that when they interviewed houseless individuals that they were very rarely offered services. So I'm just kind of wondering about that gap. While the examples, you know, you illustrated are, are very helpful to understand the process after that person's been engaged. But I guess my concern is how well are we doing at engaging people and have, are, are we analyzing that? I was writing your question. Uh, yeah, so there are multiple different kinds of outreach and multiple different kinds of engagement, which I know you know. Um, and I think that's a really good question. And um, we are actually starting to think more about how do we delve into that, what the different kinds of outreach and what's the most effective and what is serving people well. So that's something that we're starting to um, think about looking at more in depth this year. And then, so let's say you, you engage someone, we only have limited dollars, then how are you prioritizing who gets those limited dollars? So it uh, somewhat depends on the program, but we do use those coordinated access tools to um, assess vulnerability. And we have just are in the process of um, redesigning our coordinated access tool for permanent supportive housing specifically to make it more equitable and also more able to identify uh, detailed services that that person may need. So we're in the process of testing out a new version of that tool, which we think will better help us assess people's vulnerability in an equitable way and also better connect them to services. So that process is ongoing right now. That's great, Anna, thank you. Uh, you know, the other thing I listened, uh, I don't know if some of you, it was really an amazing symposium yesterday on Ballot Measure 110, uh, and it was phenomenal, but kind of the takeaway uh, that I got is that when people are housed, that re can resolve a lot of um, substance use disorder, mental health, behavioral health issues. And so uh, anyway, I thought that was a really fascinating, uh, and I would encourage anybody who wants to learn more about Ballot Measure 110, I think that recording is gonna be made available, but uh, I learned a lot, and uh, just my own personal plug, it's, it's like things actually have not gotten worse as a result of Ballot Measure 110, and the data is very early, uh, and the data really points to that uh, we need to continue um, on the path that we're, we're on. Uh, 
you know, and I just wanted to actually appreciate the chair keeping these meetings on time. I know that each one of us commissioners have a different level of knowledge and experience. And, uh, you know, if I have questions or concerns, I try to reach out to the departments and get those questions answered. Um, you know, I know that there's some frustration that there's not enough, there's never enough time uh, to discuss everything, but I actually appreciate, because I do have other uh, obligations, uh, and so I just wanted to call out that I do think it's important that we, be, that we begin and end the meetings on time. So wanted to thank you for that, Chair. Thank you. Um, Commissioner Myron. Thank you. Um, I, uh, a couple of things that um, uh, Commissioner Stegman mentioned, I wanted to, uh, to um, add to, uh, I think, the reference that, uh, that she made to the disconnect and matching issues uh, that were highlighted in the Oregonian, um, that, that is at the heart of so much of the massive gaps and lack of coordination of outreach. Um, that's what advocates and people living outside um, describe all the time. Like that is a huge, huge challenge and one of the biggest issues. So any ways that we can approach that are um, essential if we're ever gonna get a handle on getting people living unsheltered out high, uh, outside housed. Coordinated access, um, yeah, that's also described as a huge part, rather than um, coordination, it's a huge part of the problem and it is neither offering coordination nor access. So, um, you know, I've asked to be involved in that process, to get information about that process now for months and have not received any. So I would love to follow up with you um, soon after this to uh, understand what's happening there. And, um, you know, I just want to also reiterate, God bless you, that the um, that this process, uh, you know, I, I have a different sense of it, I think, than than Commissioner Stegman. While appreciating that we we absolutely need to be able to plan, um, and uh, and we can get answers to our questions from department heads and department and leaders and staff, um, I would add, sometimes. And um, even if we get those answers, for me, what's most important about these kinds of public communications is communicating to the public. So a lot of um, individuals out there might have similar questions that I have or, um, or that Commissioner Beeson has, and hearing that is really important. Not saying everyone's like attending to our board meetings all the time, but if they wanted to, they could. And I represent those people, and so ensuring I have time to ask my questions doesn't just get my questions answered, doesn't just answer those for fellow commissioners. It actually informs the public, and I think that is the, that is the core of our job. So, um, you know, I would argue that it's very important to have the time. And just in terms of timing, since I imagine we're not gonna get to make the comments that we were told we would get to make at the end of this briefing, um, that it has felt like we have not very much time, like that a lot of board meetings and briefings get canceled. 
And I was wondering, I was like, is that just me? I'm just kind of feeling that, or is that a thing? So I did the math. It is a thing. It is very real. Over the last year, um, we used less than 45% of the time we had allocated for board meetings. And I took out six weeks to say, let's not have any board meeting, just have whatever it is. And so I think that's something we need to look at because if there's time allocated, we should be using that time, all of it. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I think that's something we need to look at as a board. And to that point, I'd mentioned earlier, um, the chair canceled the board meeting on Thursday, the three and a half hour meeting. And I think there's a lot to talk about. We have a, the, I mean, just from last week alone and the response and, or lack thereof to some of the huge needs in our community, we should be discussing that. Um, there are all sorts of things we should be talking about. We could use the time to expand on these issues. And so I'm gonna show up on Thursday morning at our allocated board time. I would invite others to join me if there are three of us. We can have an actual public meeting. Otherwise, I can live stream it and have it by myself, but I will be here to answer questions and to talk to anyone who wants to listen. So I, I hope fellow board members would, would be willing to join in that. Um, so in terms of the presentation this morning, you know, I don't think that this responded to the issues I was concerned about in terms of the bigger picture. Those are around contracting, oversight, accountability, having a robust retrospective evaluation around, around emergency rent assistance, and answering some very basic sort of data and analytic questions for the bigger picture. And so I look at the, re the state's recent audit. I hope everyone's been aware of that and has read that because for me, I believe it really parallels Multnomah County's own um, responses and approach to rent assistance. And I feel like every single thing that was mentioned in there is a challenge. We have at least that challenge, perhaps more in Multnomah County. So we can learn from it. And those areas are um, having unprecedented and unpredictable circumstances needs to be acknowledged, but it's not an excuse for sort of failure to implement basic oversight and accountability measures. Called out the fact that the state spent $426 million but couldn't verify whether the millions of dollars went to the Oregonians who needed and deserve this money the most. Um, I'd like to know how much money, how much rent assistance went to actual individuals during the pandemic and what kinds of outcomes were obtained based on that. And you know, looking at redundancy or errors at the state level, they found a 30% error rate in, in the partnership they worked with, who we also partnered with at the county level to administer some of those funds. They talked about reactivity in to issues like potential fraud versus proactively having plans in place to protect from it. And they said that more than a year after the program ended, they still haven't conducted a full review. 
I don't think we've conducted even a partial review. So um, they said the poor data collection and analysis prevents the state from knowing even if its equity goals were achieved, which were so important to them and are so essential to our core work. And then they said that there have been, um, that the state's goal was to spend quickly rather than smartly, basically. And that that is what, you know, it's like, oh, we have to help people. It's more important to get money out the door than to account for what we're doing. The fact is we need to do both, especially when it's around this much money. Um, and I just wanna bookmark a small but emblematic example that just recently the board approved. It was the unanticipated revenue under the cap from last September. A director of a community-based organization was recently sharing with me that the $10 million for capacity building that everyone was really pushing to get out there, they have, no one's heard anything about where it's going, what's happening. After pressing, this individual got information that it went to United Way, apparently, and that United Way will be allocating that money somehow by the end of February, beginning of March. So yet, they're supposed to use it by the end of the fiscal year. It's like three months for this capacity building. This person said like, I don't know, the only thing I can think of I could even do that is bonuses to employees. Bonuses are wonderful, but is that the kind of capacity building we invested $10 million in to achieve? I would say no. And so I think that's a small example of this bigger problem around spending quickly rather than smartly, the lack of accountability and oversight, and the um, contracting issues. So I have recommendations about what we should do to address those. I think we should do an performance audit at the county to identify, but we can do much to change things now. And Chair, you mentioned this wasn't an urgent issue, but it, for me it is. It goes to the heart of our accountability and contracting. And as Commissioner Brim Edwards mentioned, it's part of our, a large part of our housing strategy and it accounts for hundreds of millions of dollars. So our job is to ensure the most vulnerable in our community are being served and I feel we don't have the information we need to make that determination and we keep doubling down. So some of my comments might speak to this more on Thursday when I just show up here. Thank you. Commissioner Beeson. Thank you. Um, first off, I know Marla is a pretend person, but I kind of just want to spend the afternoon in her new apartment uh, hanging out with her. Uh, second, uh, my sister didn't know what a county commissioner was, so I had to explain that to her. She also didn't know what permanent supportive housing was, so what I explained is it's basically what we do for mom, which is help pay her mortgage and do all of the things that she needs uh, after she became disabled about 25 years ago. And I think I recognize that so many of our community members do not have that. They don't have a family with the, with the bank accounts to support them uh, and help them navigate and what to them feels like an increasingly complex world. In my recollection, the reason we passed SHS in some ways was a huge part about this long-term 
need uh, for permanently supportive housing. So I am putting my bias out there that I think this is a key strategy on an ongoing basis. I recognize we made a political decision about 10 years for all the reasons that that became a political decision. But I think we have a lot of data to suggest even nationally that long-term permanently supportive housing through some type of voucher system makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I'll also just note for the record, my sister is a real estate agent and realtors were the people that invented the housing voucher back in the 1930s. They advocated for it at the federal level. I think it's a great system. I'm interested in us consider, um, considering what it means to think about a statewide system of long-term housing voucher delivery. Uh, Home Forward is a great partner, but at some point I want us to envision a future uh, where poor people are more in charge of their lives uh, than we currently let them. And that to me th is about thinking about state level system implementation at uh, through agencies that don't require them to move through the kind of bureaucracy. For me, that's Department of Revenue. I am relatively rich. I file my taxes with DOR and whether I'm cheating or not, that's the agency that I work with, right? And I think we have funneled so much of our subsidy programs for poor people uh, into structures that continually remind them that they are less than. So, you know, when we think about something, I know the Turner Center for Fair Housing or for Housing Innovation uh, released a paper a few years ago on the fair housing tax credit uh, idea. In some ways, it treats, treats the voucher system like we do with Obamacare, deliver monthly subsidies through the Department of Revenue so that poor people aren't left feeling any different than any other tenant. Uh, so I'd love to explore those kinds of innovations as we think about year 10 and the renewal of this kind of stuff, because uh, I think we should be looking at administrative costs and how to streamline those. And I think one way of doing that is to treat poor people like any other people um, and use the tax structures that we have to be able to deliver that. Uh, thank you, Chair, for allowing me to ask zero questions and just pontificate. Thank you. Uh, you are welcome. Um, the, I will say one of the things that was brought up was the, um, the Metro, the proposal that came to Metro through the board last week. And um, that is something that um, we are having, you know, conversations and getting more information about exactly what the intention is from there. One of the things that I have um, known is, or have heard is um, because, as you said, Commissioner Beeson, the supportive housing service measure was originally um, set up to only be 10 years long for, again, political reasons or what was viable with the voters or whatever the reasons were um, for that decision. If they want to use any of the dollars for bonding for affordable housing, that the remainder of the measure isn't enough time to do that, to, to really get the, the bang for the buck for affordable housing. So I think that's one of the things under discussion is what does that actually mean for the life of the measure? But my core question to Metro is what do we need, what is the dollar amount that we need in order to fulfill the obligations that we have through the supportive housing service measure, um, goals and outcomes and objectives that the voters passed? And that is my, my key fundamental thing. I think that is going to take um, a lot of work on Metro's um, part to, to make sure like county or region wide, we understand that. It's gonna take work on our part to really understand what we need. Um, but as I, I said um, last week, the fact is we have a lot of one-time only or ARP dollars that are end-lifing, that are paying for shelter beds, that are paying for services, um, both on the uh, city and the county side, that we need to make sure that we're not gonna lose the capacity there. So as we engage in those conversations, I encourage you to, um, you know, I, I will share information as it comes forward. It's been um, 
there hasn't been a lot of information that's come forward yet, but I think that this is something also where we can ask Metro if they're going to be proposing anything to come in and report to this board as well. So I appreciate that. Um, can I just say that that it would be great to have that shared with the entire commission because um, I heard about it, of course, indirectly through a reporter about like, well, what do you think about them <laughs> taking part of the money? It's like, well, we certainly haven't accomplished what the voters, um, I think, intended, and it's not just Multnomah County, but obviously um, Washington and Clackamas County. And um, I, I think it is gonna require a much bigger public conversation um, because it, it may be convenient that we have a stream of um, funds um, that others might wanna use, but I, I don't think it should just be a conversation that's happening behind closed doors or that doesn't include like all the governing bodies of the, of the um, three counties because I think we're gonna be held accountable of whether we actually used those resources to address the issue that voters um, <laughs> intended. And so I, I really hope that, again, we'd have, be having public meetings, the dialogue would be happening and open because I feel that we are gonna be held accountable and we need to be accountable um, that we're going to use the resources in a way that addresses the issue at hand, not that somebody else sees that we have there's there's revenue that could be could be used and um, they can you know in, in a back room make an, make some sort of agreement that it goes somewhere else besides to the place where voters intended it. Yeah, I agree, and I, you know, frankly, it was a surprise to me. I didn't um, until I saw the. Um, the article about the fact that Metro had that conversation, or I think we were reached out by a reporter who was like, what do you think about the presentation to Metro? That was a, um, that was news to me. So, <laughs> so all of these things are coming through. So I do think that um, asking them, inviting them to come and share what's being proposed is, um, is, a, is something that we can definitely do. Um, so we are at time and um, you know, I appreciate the conversation we had. I appreciate all the information that was shared. I know that um, there has been a lot of appetite for really digging in and understanding what are we doing well that is effective, that is getting the outcomes that we need so that we can um, know those things and continue to invest and grow those kinds of things and also a really clear um, desire to understand what is the breakdown in terms of the, the dollars that are actually getting to people in terms of services and rental assistance versus um, administrative costs throughout the system that are, are um, you know, kind of being a drag potentially on, on what we might need in order to do that. I will say one of the things that's really important to me though is, and I don't know, and one, one question I have is for these indirect services, for some of these administrative costs, like what is considered into the um, wages of the employees at these, at these nonprofit organizations? Because we know that workforce and wages of workforce are an ongoing concern. I hear it all the time from uh, nonprofit um, directors and staff that this is such a challenge of, of retaining workforce. And so understanding also like sometimes what's reflected in those costs are actually paying, paying you know, wages for, for people who are on staff. Um, and to that effect, I just wanted to um, say that the getting the capacity building grants um, out the door um, finding a partner of United Way to do that. We're re I'm really grateful that United Way is, um, was able to step up and, and to, take this, um, to take this on. It is truly up to organizations 
to decide what is going to be best for that organization in order to use those to build capacity for their organization. Um, and so um, there will be more information about that as, as those dollars um, go out the door and as we you know, have conversations with providers on how they're gonna use that. But I did wanna say that that was a really important thing. Um, you know, in, in terms of um, their partnership enabling us to do that. So I, um, so I appreciate the conversation today. I will ask you um, when you receive questions from commissioners, if you can um, consolidate those and as you're um, responding, please make sure you're responding to the whole board so that we do get um, uh, um, visibility into everything that's being asked. And um, you know, Teja, I think one thing we can um, ask is, if we can post questions and answers like we do during the budget period publicly on our website so that the public also has access to those, we do that during budget time for questions that come up um, during those meetings, um, and I think we can see how we can do that on our, um, on our public website for board meetings. It should be something that um, we shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be a challenge to do that. So, well, that's my commitment to that. Um, appreciate everybody's